there is this whole generation, I think, of younger people who recognize the way that we've handed over our cities to cars is a mistake, a deep mistake. And we need to rethink it because of the environment, because of safety, because of equity. And there's a community across the country pushing for this. Pete Buttigieg, the DOT secretary, is part of this. So I feel more at home in the urban transportation community these days, but I also am more optimistic about the real opportunity for change. Well, welcome to Bike Talk. Um, David Zipper, thank you for joining us. And we have Terrence Houston on um, joining us today. And Terrence is, you may know him as LA Bike Dad on Twitter. And he is an activist, a writer, a director, and the founder and visionary behind Sunset for All. Um, I'm Lindsay Sturman. I'm a housing and bike activist and and, uh, actually a TV writer in real life. Um, And David Zipper, you are a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School focused on the future of cities and tech and mobility and a startup advisor and policy wonk. And you write for City Lab, Slate and Wired. Uh, yeah, well, that this is nothing you've said is untrue. Exactly. Um, no, that's all right. Um, I'm a contributing writer at City Lab, so I do quite a bit there and um, and stuff in other publications as well. But I have a background working on the public sector side and the Bloomberg administration in New York and the mayor's office in DC, where I live. I'm an East Coaster, um, and um, and I'm also working a lot with startups. So I try to stay in that space between technology and cities and urban policy. And, uh, and I appreciate you inviting me to be with you today. Yeah. So, so tell us about the e-bike act. Uh, well, um, I, it's, it's a big, it's a big thing, a new thing. Um, I mean, e-bikes have been sort of like a hot topic even before the pandemic last year. And then with so many people in lockdown, um, frankly, e-bike sales just sort of went through the roof, not just in America, but in Europe as well. Uh, in Australia, just you couldn't, it's hard to even find them. Um, and so they're they're really popular technology and, and they're good for the environment, which we can maybe talk a little bit more about. So Congress, there are two congressional representatives, one from California, Jimmy Panetta, the other one from Oregon, Earl Blumenauer, introduced the uh, the e-bike act, which is literally what it's called. Uh, do I have the acronym in front of me? It's hilarious. Uh, the Electric Bicycle Incentive Kickstart for the Environment Act, or the it. e-bike act. I'm in Washington, although I, I've not worked in Congress. And I, I was just telling somebody, I think that like the only way to really get ahead as a low level staffer in Congress sometimes is being really good at acronyms, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But the e-bike act, was um, it was just introduced very recently, and I wrote about it in Slate a couple of weeks ago, and the, the text is now available on congress.gov as of just a couple of days ago, and I was tweeting about it, which I think is how you guys connected with me. Um, but it, it effectively would provide the first ever subsidy for the, if it's passed, it would provide the first ever subsidy in the form of a, a refundable rebate for Americans who buy a new electric bicycle or an e-cargo bike. And the basics of of the the language now, and it will change, I'm sure, but the basics of it are that it's eligible for any e-bike or e-cargo bike up to $8,000. It's $1,500 on a rebate that you claim basically when you do your next year's tax returns. And you can claim it once every three years. It's not available on pedal bikes. 
It's not now available on conversions, although that is likely to change. Jimmy Panetta told me when I wrote the article in Slate. Um, and there are certain high power bikes that it wouldn't be eligible because it's cut off at 70, 750 watts. So those are some of the basics. It's been introduced in the house. It has not come up for a vote yet. And we will see. Wow. That sounds, that sounds fantastic. Um, you have such an interesting background, this fusion between having worked in economic developments and um, you know, on the transportation sphere. And as I was cyber stalking you in preparation for this interview, one of the things that you talked about was that you discovered that transportation was the true economic development tool. And, and I wanted to hear more about how you came to believe that and, and, yeah. and how, how, why you think that is. Yeah, I'm sort of a, I feel like a lot of people who are doing the most interesting things in transportation have weird backgrounds <laughs> um, in, for transportation in cities, at least, you know, and, 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 and I don't know, like my own journey um, really was most focused initially on cities and economic development. I always loved cities. That was a given. But I was, I, I, without going into great detail, you know, I ended up in my very early 30s in Washington, D.C., in the mayor's office leading economic development, which traditionally, for some of you, you may be aware, it involves like, how do I lure a business from over there to over here? Yeah. Uh, and how do you play with taxes this way and that way? And how do I basically have like snazzy marketing for my city? Like, you know, like if you really want to grow your company, you've got to be an Oxnard or whatever. Um, and I, I, I was getting a little disenchanted, as you might tell from my voice. Uh, but at the time, you know, I was looking around. I was in charge of economic development strategy. So it was like I was I, I, I mean, it was interesting in some ways, like workforce development, I think, is, is much deeper. But a lot of it felt like it was kind of bullshit. And, and meanwhile, um, D.C. about 10 years ago when I was in the mayor's office, had a lot happening around urban transportation. That this was when um, uh, capital bike share was introduced, the mm -hmm. first sustainable bike share program or viable bike share program in North America by a visionary guy named Gabe Klein, who was leading DC's DOT. It's also when ride hail emerged, and I myself was involved in in, in ride hail. Like and I'll tell you the connection between economic development and transportation. I literally. Um, you know, had, I, I like Uber came to town. I didn't know what Uber was, never heard of it, but I'll tell you how I heard about it. I got a call about a few months in to Uber being around from a CEO of a big tech company. He's like, David, what the hell is DC doing? I'm like, what are you talking about? Does I know seriously, what are you doing to the tech companies that you're trying to attract here? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, we're, your, your taxi cab commissioner is kicking out Uber. You realize how this is wow. going to piss off every tech executive oh and worker. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'll look into it. <laughs> and I realized I probably should know about this. And uh, so it kind of kicked me in the ass. Um, but in all seriousness, um, I realized that actually our, you know, the local transportation network in DC had historically terrible taxis and Uber to it, all that does bad things for cities. And I believe, you know, it did improve the taxi service in DC dramatically. I realized that things like Uber and bike share have an amazing ability to attract young um, mobile workers, which are the kind that a growing uh, city like, like DC or LA for that matter can most value. And I started to think, you know, transportation is, is so important for city's future. And 
I've been talking for too long, so I'll stop. But suffice right. to say that I started getting more and more interested in transportation. And now I, I, I still dabble in economic development, but I really believe that urban transportation is is at least, if not more important to the future of our cities. Can I ask a quick question? Just because I, I really hate those tax breaks and I don't, I, I'm, you know, I'm not an economist, but it just seems you're can like you're just taking jobs from one place and taking them somewhere else. So they always seem, and they seem so unfair. I mean, yes. like, <laughs> I mean, I, I always hated incentives. Like I felt like, like I literally once heard the Virginia economic development director at a talk about how, you know, we just got to spruce up all parts of our, 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 our state. We got to put lipstick on the pig. And I'm like, <laughs> why don't we build a better pig? Like, this is dumb. And I feel like, you know, I, I really, I, I, I find that traditional economic development really is that it's moving jobs from one part of the country to another it's 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 zero sum and it's unfair to small businesses that aren't big enough yet to get on the radar screen of your economic development agency and get a big windfall so i um i'm deeply skeptical of the current application of local economic development. You see it with HQ too. I'm sure you guys are aware of that with Amazon's oh, yeah. search for a second headquarters and how many, how many, I wrote about this actually in City Lab, how many resources were wasted in that? But they, they never, they didn't win, right? They didn't end up getting it or did they? Well, 250 cities applied, wasted a ton of time and a lot of money mm -hmm. on it. And then ultimately if the Amazon chose to split its headquarters between Northern Virginia, Arlington, uh, close to where I live and Queens, New York. And then Queens said, no, you're not coming here. <laughs> and Amazon pulled out, although ironically, it's actually created just as many jobs in New York City as it was going to do with HQ2. The whole thing is ridiculous. It's like a comedy. But I'll tell you what, it's hard to change because, um, you know, I think in, in you've got really it's a group of like old white guys who gather around groups like and i'm a white guy to be honest i'm not that old yet i'm not that young either but still it's like old guys like they they're always it's it's you know they they are trained by these particular groups to get these particular economic development certifications and it just needs to be blown up it really does the whole field does and that's part of what to get back to transportation part of what i find encouraging about urban transportation and mobility is that there is this, this whole generation, I think, of younger people who recognize the way that we've handed over our cities to cars is, is, is a mistake, a deep mistake. And we need to rethink it because of the environment, because of safety, because of equity. And there's a community across the country pushing for this. Pete Buttigieg, the DOT secretary, is part of this. So I find myself feeling like both I, I feel more at home in the urban transportation community these days, but I also am more optimistic about the real opportunity for change. I just have a quick follow-up question because you brought up Amazon HQ2 in Queens, and this does come back to transportation. Um, you know, talking about how, you know, urban mobility and bike lanes can be seen as a gentrifying force. And when we mention economic development and, uh, and, and, and a lot of the challenges in getting bike lanes put in in certain neighborhoods in LA can revolve around gentrification. And you know, H2, HQ2 for Amazon was you know Long Island City, Queens, and there was sort of blowback against having it because there seems to be this zero sum game when you do the twin housing crisis with the mobility issues. How do we, 
how do we, we improve the urban form without replacing the people who are already here? And how do we get those bike lanes and get prosperity and make sure that it's equitable development? There's all kinds of questions that are built into that. Um, and to me, a lot of what it comes back to is density. Because if we allow, and this is, I know, a battle ongoing in your city in Los Angeles and really across California, but if we can get toward having more parts of our cities that are built more densely, it enables, first of all, it just makes housing more affordable. It enables lots of ways of getting around without having to drive, uh, which could include transit, can include bikes and e-bikes and scooters and all of that. Um, and, 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 and then I think once you have that kind of density and you're able to have more people using bike lanes or using the, the streets for those types of, uh, for, for micromobility, really, I think it becomes more self-evident that that infrastructure has to be there. You don't have so much of the, the pushback, which isn't especially well-informed, but you do hear it all across the country of, well, why are we setting aside space for a bike lane when you barely see anybody using it? Mm -hmm. Part of the reason you, you have those complaints is that, frankly, a bike takes up so much less space than an automobile that people's perceptions get oh, skewed. That's interesting. Um, but anyway, I, I, that, that, those are some of my initial thoughts. And to be honest, we could be on this call for the next 10 Three hours days. talking Three about days. Those, 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 those issues. Yeah, yeah. To the, your, your, the point about transportation helping economic development, or how does transportation help economic development? Well, there's a, there, it's, I think, I think it's actually really deep. I think my initial understanding or my aha moment I was alluding to earlier, which is the idea when you have ways to get around a city without having to drive, you have a more appealing city for people who are mobile and can choose which city to live in and would prefer not to have to drive everywhere. So it's an advantage to New York and DC and Boston, cities like that, and maybe San Francisco too now, that you don't need to have a car really to-, to, have, to That is have so amazing. And I've never thought about that. And, and I grew up in New York and I moved to Los Angeles and I moved to one of like the three neighborhoods where you could walk. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's a piece of it. That just sort of smacked me in the, in the, in the head when I, I it dawned it on me. Um, but I actually think it gets deeper than that even. Um, there's a really powerful book by a NYU professor, a French, a French guy, um, Elaine Bertot. It's called Order Without Design. And he's sort of an urban planner slash economist, but the central, it's a wonderful book. I can show it to you. It's back on my shelf there. But the, uh, the, the central premise I think is so deep, which is to say that, you know, businesses rely on the quality of their workforce to be able to be more competitive. And a, a business will be more competitive when it can tap more people or a higher share of the people within a metropolitan area. People won't usually travel beyond, say, 30 minutes, maybe more like an hour each way. So the extent to which you're able to provide affordable, reliable ways for a higher share of your urban population to reach business locations actually makes those businesses more competitive compared to businesses everywhere else because they can tap more people to find the best people to fill their jobs. 
So that actually is a phenomenal argument in favor of density. It's a phenomenal argument in favor of, in my view, uh, strong transit networks, reliable transit networks. And it's something, it's a whole framework that I feel like is lost on most economic developers who I've spoken with. Wow, that's amazing. Now, you also ran a, a, um, an incubator for startups, you know, that, that were around mobility. And as we see, like, you know, mayors are always falling over themselves to go after the next shiny thing, like electric car tunnels. Thank you, Las Vegas. Or, um, or hey, it's not just that. You have more than that, aren't you? <laughs> now going to be the air taxi center of the country? Isn't uh, that yes. what Garcetti has said? Congrats. Yeah, I'm, sure, yeah. I'm sure we're all going to have, you know, gyrocopter backpacks any day yeah. now. Um, you know, because obviously it's a lot more fun to have that press conference than telling a small business owner that you're taking the parking out in front of their store to put in bike lanes. Um, but talking about mobility and technology, um, how do you see technology helping, you know, sustainable mobility to improve the mobility that we already have, you know, buses, bikes? Yeah, so I think, so I do a lot of work with startups. I do a lot of work with cities and transit agencies around thinking about technology. And um, I think that there are sort of two ways to approach technology from, from, from cities when you're thinking about mobility. One is healthy and one is destructive. The destructive way is to say, ooh, look, this new technology is out there. How do I get it to my city? And let's figure out a way to deploy it and some reason I can have for doing so. Uh, when I think of that, I think of, of Miami and the Boring Company. <laughs> I think of, um, I think of, to be blunt about it, um, I think of, uh, you know, like, like there, there's, I mean, there's Hyperloop, there's autonomous vehicle pilots that you see that are done all over the place. And it's basically like, hey, cool, I don't want to be left out. Let me put this on uh, Put this up, uh, uh, you know, on, on the street, and I'll get a press release out of it and some stories. I just did a presentation. I wrote an article in City Lab. I did a, a talk about it yesterday, even called FOMO being the the, the greatest risk <laughs> to urban transportation strategy. <laughs> um, so that's the bad way to think about technology. The good way is to start with first principles, which is what the goal is that a city has, and these days. I'm happy to say it's part of why I enjoy working with uh, with cities on transportation. I don't care if it's Kansas City or Los Angeles or Boston, pretty much every DOT, Department of Transportation, is going to say we care about climate change, we care about equity, we care about Vision Zero. For the big cities, like it's pretty much everywhere. They want the same kinds of things. So if that's what you care about, then great. Let's be articulate about those, the, those goals and let's take that new technology, the sidewalk drone or whatever the hell it is, and say, like, what's the hypothesis for how this technology could help you achieve the goals that you've established, whether it's around equity, around safety or what have you, and then run a pilot or two to test it. I wrote a, a policy brief with Harvard about the right way to set up urban mobility pilots, where the conclusion is the only bad pilots for new technology are those that don't you don't learn anything from. It may seem self-evident, but I'm telling you, there are not pilots being, there's nothing learned from these little AV shuttles that I see you know, ending up in various cities around the country for a period of months, just to be able to show off for a bit. You've got to be able to test something. And the way to test is to first figure out what, gen, what, what credible hypothesis links 
that new technology, like e-scooters, for example, to what you're trying to achieve. But these people sometimes like viscerally hate e-scooters. I defend them because there's a variety of studies now from places like Hoboken and Arlington, Virginia and Chicago and Portland, Oregon, that around four in 10 trips taken on a new scooter, e-scooter is gonna replace an automobile trip. That's good for most cities. Like you wanna reduce car trips. So that's an example of a potentially constructive new mobility form. Now, I don't know what those hypotheses would be for all the air taxis that your mayor apparently wants to bring to Los Angeles, <laughs> but maybe I missed that that particular press release. <laughs> right. Now, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead no, Lisa. you go, Terrence. <laughs> I was just gonna say that you've also written about the fact that EVs can't save us from climate change. And um, that's such a hard concept to get across to people when we go into these community meetings and we talk yeah. about these things. Yeah. Um, how do you talk about it in ways that seem to persuade? That's a tough one. Um, I, I, first of all, it, it, it's, it's true. Like there's not even really a debate among scientists that if we simply focus on electrification without thinking about mode shift, we're not gonna, hit, we're, we'll fail to hit our climate goals. That's just a reality. And I think the, 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 the this is really hard. I, I think it's a matter of sort of acknowledging how difficult this is, because I think some of the pushback or the, the focus on EVs, in my view, has a lot to do with people not wanting to change their lifestyle. Like, they, like I, mm-hmm. I, I want to do good for the environment, but I really don't have to rethink how I get around. I really don't want to think of rethink about how or where I'm going to live. I have cardboard straws. Really isn't difficult. that enough? <laughs> exactly. 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 Like, yeah, I, I recycle most of the time with the, you know, the, the metal cans that I use when I'm I brought a cotton bag to Trader Joe's. <laughs> no, I know, I know. And and rather than yell at those people, which I think can be a default setting and be like, you're idiots. I'm not idiots. <laughs> they just they don't wanna they don't wanna uproot their entire lifestyle. I I, I feel like like all, like all I've been able to do thus far is to be able to actually just sort of share the information, say, look, you know, here's what the OECD has shown in terms of what the actual climate emissions are from driving an electric vehicle versus a bike. And by the way, for a given mile of travel, it's like a 50 to one ratio. It's it's off the charts. That's for an electric vehicle even. Wow. Um, that was part of, you may have seen the, the tweet thread that I did about the e-bike act included a table that I'm actually referencing from the OECD that I found to be eye-opening with a lot of people to because they just don't realize that even if you do go toward electric vehicles, the delta between a a traditional internal combustion car and an electric car is nothing compared to the difference between an electric vehicle and a bus or an electric vehicle and an e-bike. It's a world of difference. And and I've, I've found that message to help resonate. Thank you. Wow. Um, we actually, Bike Talk interviewed Costa Samaras, who did the paper. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, and it was it was really mind blowing, but it's hard because, um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts about, and th- this might be too in the bike world or into like bike infrastructure, whether cities should be going for networks throughout the city or smaller communities that are bikeable? Is there any research being done around that? Yeah, there's a lot of research that's done. Um, and I think the, 
So there, I think something that's really important to keep in mind is if we're talking about climate change and biking, we have a different conversation if we're talking about health and biking. Biking is good in all kinds of ways. Um, I'm a cyclist myself. Um, and I am fortunate in that, you know, I, I bike in different ways, let's put it that way. Um, let's think about pre-COVID biking for me and for probably a lot of people who are going to listen to your podcast as well. You might, you know, you, you might have the experience of waking up on a Saturday, the weather's nice, and you decide I'm going to go get some exercise. And so you bike on a route that's protected and safe. And then you go 20 miles, 30 miles, whatever it is, you come back home and you feel good. That's a recreational bike trip that gives you health uh, or improved health, but it's not actually improving the environment because you weren't going to drive otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> now that's fundamentally different from a different type of bike trip, which is when you have a commuter bike and on a Tuesday morning in pre-COVID times or post-COVID times, you get up at, and you leave your house at 8 a.m. and you bike three miles to a meeting where you have the meeting, then you bike a mile to another meeting and then you bike somewhere else and then eventually you come back home. Now you actually have both gotten some exercise sort of passively, if you will, um, but but it's, that's good for health, but you've also taken car a car off the road and that's good for congestion. It's good for the environment. Um, it's a different type of benefit. So the reason I, and the reason I bring this up when you ask about the importance of bike networks, you don't need an exhaustive network to, to, to encourage people to take that Saturday morning uh, recreational bike trip. You do need a, a, a workable bike network that gets people where they want to go if you actually wanna replace cars for those weekday commute trips. And that's where it becomes a real question. You, so if, 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 if this is a debate that you're having in, in a given city, including in Los Angeles, I think it's a matter of, of being very clear about it. Like it's, it's nice that you have some great bike paths where you can get exercise, but if we're serious about climate goals, then we need to talk about a bike network that really allows people to get safely wherever they need to go around business centers. Yeah, I always feel super guilty because when I'm, when I'm selling these protected bike lanes at these community meetings, I'm always like, these lanes aren't for cyclists. They're for regular people to get on a bike to run errands. God, and that's, can I just say, I, you, it's sort of like, like a, I always, I try to put, I, you triggered me a little bit. Like <laughs> there's no such thing as like a cyclist. I always oh, I like know. to say, you know, yeah. like, like it's like there's some type of human being who is born as a cyclist or is like, you know, identifies as a cyclist and only a cyclist. Like we're like the majority of us learn how to bike. I actually didn't until I was 30. Like I wow. was a late bloomer. Yeah. But, but the thing is, the thing is I learned how to bike as an adult not even an especially young adult, because I happen to live in Washington, DC, a city that has a great bike share system, a pretty good bike network. And I thought, you know, I could potentially maybe feel safe doing this on a regular basis. And eventually I got hooked and now I'm a bike commuter, blah, 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 blah. I'm, I'm just like a human being. We're all just human beings. And the more that we create safe infrastructure for cyclists, and this is why I do use the term cyclist, then the more people are going to say, oh, I could be one of those. We're just, it's just for people who live in the city, encouraging them to get on two wheels and go. It's, it's not like there's some special breed that takes advantage of protected lanes. It really could be for anyone who is physically able to bike. 
Now you were in, um, you know, you were in New York during, you know, Bloomberg's expansion of the bike network along with SETICON. Um, do you have any tips on how they were able to, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of pushback, even though there was density in New York, I'm sure the community boards often didn't want to give up parking. Was there any key that you were able to see in terms of us being able to accelerate that process in LA, any lessons learned? Yeah, so let me let me be candid. I was in the Bloomberg administration. That was in my economic development phase. So I wasn't working specifically on the very important bike work that Jeanette Sadekan and her team were focused on. But what I will say that I think she did really well um, is to just is to do is to call things pilots when you already know the community is <laughs> going to love it. Like she, did that in, she did that in Times Square where people just freaking loved the little pop-up park that was created. Um, even the pilot, even like what, what they called the New Yorkers called in, in fall of 2019, the miracle on 14th street, when 14th street in Manhattan went car free, mm. that was initially called a pilot and <laughs> it was such a hit. And everybody was like, don't you ever take this away? Even Bill de Blasio, who, who is terrible at this stuff, recognized that he couldn't change it. It was gonna have to stick around. Um, and, and, but I think part of it, the trick I've seen work is to just don't, don't push for, don't have to force permanent change down people's throats when you know that if they just get a glimpse of the promised land, if you will, of the parklet or the, 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 the car-free street, they're going to like it. Just let them have that. And then they, they'll, they like to get a toe in the water and then they get, then they'll get, ex then they'll get excited. And frankly, once you have a few of those, then other people will will come and visit and see and see their friend in, in that neighborhood and they'll experience it and they'll say, well, wait, I wonder if maybe this is something we should have in my neighborhood too. So you're a mobility a pusher. You're a mobility pusher. You're pushing mobility. Uh, you're still mobility. Uh, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, you know, I yeah, I I, uh, I believe in it. I believe in it. It's all good. Fellow at Harvard, we can't go there. <laughs> Do you, we actually heard a term, uh, Terrence and I interviewed someone the other day and they said iterative urbanism, which I loved. So it's like, call it, I don't think they didn't say call it a pilot, but they're like, make it temporary. And if it doesn't work, change it. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I, I, I try, I'll be honest with you. I, I this is, uh, this, this is, I, I may annoy some people by saying this. I don't use the term urbanism because I feel like we're just talking to ourselves when we do. I just say like, look, look, we can like, you know, make this, this, we can give you a little park. We can actually help you have your kids be in the street. I can, like there's like 3% of us that consider ourselves urbanists or even really know what that means. I still don't know what it means. I, I'm not even sure I do. Like, like it's like, yeah. So I, I, I just like, let's make it practical. Like people didn't get excited about the pop-ups in Times Square because like, it was like, fantastic urbanism they got excited because <laughs> it's like oh cool i have a place to sit when i've been shopping or like it's just the air smells better like that's how you connect with people in my experience not by being like look i have this amazing urbanist idea for you it's not good no. <laughs> i mean good luck but no and i don't want to belabor how frustrating i find um Mayor de blasio but any insight into why does he why does he kind of have this whole thing inside out uh, he's awful. He, uh, <laughs> um, the, I mean, the, I mean, I, th I actually really do think the windshield mentality is real. Mm. Like it becomes like a catchphrase of sorts, but I think that when your experience 
of your city has to do with, with, with driving. There's actually data around this. You form fewer connections with people in your community. Um, you observe less around you, uh, but you also just, you genuinely don't identify with the mentality or the concerns of people who don't have two or three tons of metal around them, like pedestrians and cyclists. I think it's terrible that we have a it's not we anymore. I've lived in New York for 10 years, but it's terrible that our, our nation's largest city is run by somebody who thinks it's okay to be driven in an SUV to his gym. Like, it's just not the way we should be. We, we should be doing things in New York where the majority of people don't own a car. It's unfortunate. Right. And LA, do you, if you, have you spent time in LA and only a little bit, I do not pretend to be an expert, although I've actually written about LA quite a bit with the, the LA DOT. I know, I know Salita Reynolds pretty well and the whole mobility data specification stuff I wrote about a lot. That was the, the data controversy around scooters. If you're familiar with that, um, you might not be. Um, so let's put it this way. I have, I, I, I have written about LA more than I've been there. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Which is maybe dangerous, but you know, it, it, you do what you can do. <laughs> There's interesting stuff happening in, in LA for sure, but I don't pretend to be an expert on, on the, the built environment there. And, and what's going on with LA Metro? The, uh, you're, can I say you're having a big meeting at nine? I can cut that out. It's, I, I'm having a conversation with them, but it's it's not a big meeting. Um, I uh, no, I LA Metro is has actually done some really creative, interesting things nationally. I do a lot of work with transit agencies across the country, and one of the more creative things that Phil Washington did when he came to LA Metro was to create this Office of Extraordinary Innovation, led by a guy with a pretty national profile, jo Joshua Shank. Who I believe is from LA originally, but he was brought over from Washington DC at the time. Smart guy. Um, do you, has you, have you had him on the podcast before or you know what I'm talking about? Joshua I, Shank, no? Um, okay. Nick it's, might No, it's totally fine. Um, but, one, of but my, he, one of my partners in crime on getting no. like light lines built is in that department. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, but what's, what's interesting about what that office has done is first of all, they just take lots of um, unsolicited proposals, which I think is unusual for a transit agency. But they've also, uh, to their credit, in my view, embraced this idea, which is starting to gain traction of transit agencies being mobility managers, where you're not just trying to get people onto buses and trains, you're trying to sort of act like a, uh, like a, a maestro of sorts, trying to look at the overall mobility network of a region and and frankly, reduce the number of people who are driving themselves in a car alone. Um, and that's something that I find really interesting. And I've talked with LA Metro about a bit, and I think they're one of the, the national leaders. They, the one thing that is public, um, although I don't know how much attention it got, I was struck by it. Uh, late last year, maybe last fall, they announced a behavioral psychology uh, pilot where they're going to look at a sort of multimodal rewards program and how to use um, sort of sort of perks to nudge people toward transit and walking and biking all those modes and they're working with researchers at Duke and Harvard to think through that and I find that very powerful I think that the whole behavioral psychology world applied to transportation gets really interesting 
That is interesting. So if you were Grand Poobah of Los Angeles, <laughs> even though you haven't spent much time here, uh, I'm sure you can understand these sort of, you know, Western post-war cities that were sort of you yeah. know, rebuilt around the car. We're not going to say built around the car because we were built around streetcars, but we were rebuilt around the car. Um, so if you were the Grand Poobah, what would be like the regulatory regime that you would want to put in place to encourage more people or to give them a stick to, you know, leave that car in the driveway? Yeah, so I... um Gosh, I, I, I'm not going to give sweeping recommendations to LA because for LA, because I, I just don't know enough about the city at the moment. To, and I haven't experienced it myself to feel educated enough in that way. I will say that LA, you, some of you, you may be aware, um, you're actually the first city to sort of really elevate the automobile over every other mode in the mm. 1920s. Um, a guy with the last name of McClintock was really the national traffic engineer. And he got his start in Los Angeles, um, basically overruling the concerns of people using streetcars and, and walking to set aside more space for wider, wider, wider roads. Um, and those uh, ideas were emulated by offices of planning when they were created and they were just starting to get going there in the late 20s and 30s. He went on to actually lead a whole center at Harvard that was funded by the Studebaker, as I recall. Wow. So um, there's a long history. And Los Angeles plays a really powerful role in the, the built environment of cities that grew rapidly in the 20th century. Have, have we made up for it by being able to claim Donald Shoup? <laughs> uh, he's cool. You have some good professors at UCLA, no, yeah, that's right. No. Um, can, I, can I just say like, for those who are interested in that, there's a phenomenal book about uh, about what happened in LA and and really it's a national story, but Los Angeles plays an outsized role along with a couple of other cities. Detroit is another one. Um, it's called Fighting Traffic by a professor at the University of Virginia named Peter Norton. And it's just a wonderful book about the history. It's a frustrating book, but it's a wonderful book and it's explanatory power about the history of um, of, of American streets in the 20s and in the 19 teens and 20s and how motordom, as Norton calls it, sort of elevated automobile speed above every other priority for streets. Interesting. And, and just how dangerous that's been, how bad that's been. Mm. Um, so I've managed to give a, hopefully an interesting anecdote or digression while not answering your question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, but what I will say in terms of, of what I think is constructive and, and, and this isn't specific to LA, but it's to, I'm working with some other cities. Like I'm doing a lot of work with Las Vegas right now, which is another like city that really just entirely grew in the 20th century. And I think the, the, and it's very, it's even more than LA an auto dominated built environment there. Yes. And, um, and I think, you know, this gets back to, to, to um, Lindsay, what you were alluding to earlier, you know, one of the best things you can do is right. You can't just like snap your finger and change a city's built environment overnight or even in a decade. But what you can do is create more pockets of good urbanism. There we go. Since we're all talking <laughs> to one another here where you actually are offering a glimpse of, of a built environment where it is possible, like one of those three neighborhoods you were saying, to live your life without having to drive. And you try to, then you try to, once you have three, you look for the fourth and you try to find in a place that's a little bit distant maybe so that people who didn't experience the other three might see that fourth. And you just sort of like, you, you, you show, don't tell that a better possibility is out there. And in that way you build longer term support. 
but it's going to take a long time because we in this country have so screwed ourselves. And it's not because of GM messing with the streetcars in LA or elsewhere. It's because, you know, it's really on all of us or on our parents and grandparents. We just embraced the idea of auto dominated cities, which has been something of a dead end. And I, and I feel like there's a grow, growing awareness of, of what the price we've paid for that. You see that in Farhad Manju's pieces in the New York Times and podcasts like yours uh, in, in the discussions that are happening in planning departments across the country. Uh, but this is, it's an overdue, an overdue reckoning. Do you, at the, is there a conversation at the Kennedy School happening about this? I, I kind of wanted to ask, like, what, what's like, where's the Overton window going? Like, what, what are the big ideas out there that we may not know about? Well, it's happening, it's happening all over. Um, I mean, I think like a huge deal are the idea of car-free streets, like Market Street in San Francisco and 14th Street in, in Manhattan. Like that feels crazy in an American city. It shouldn't, but it does. If you've been to Europe, you know it's not crazy, <laughs> but it feels it. Um, I think that's actually a huge deal. I, and, and, and I really, really like it. Um, and I think, and, and I actually think, you know, like the crazy wild ideas, I don't actually know that we need so many crazy wild ideas to get better. Like here's a crazy wild idea. What if we had a federal program to support sidewalks? <laughs> like, why is it that sidewalks are paid by people who own the property right, uh, right adjacent to it, but the streets are paid by all taxpayers? Guess who gets screwed in that? It's people who live in low-income communities where people can't afford to maintain their sidewalks. So you get a crappy network that inhibits not just people's ability to walk, or, but also, of course, using a wheelchair as well, but also to walk to bike share or to walk to a transit stop. Like why, why do we ever go down this crazy path of, 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 of assuming that streets and highways and interstates are gonna be government funded, but sidewalks won't? Like you don't get a lot of snow in Los Angeles, but we do where I live and further north, why are streets always plowed, but we never think about plowing sidewalks? Like I, that's a wild, crazy idea. It's just may not be what you were thinking of. I would love to see the, like, like the government take a more active role and sort of changing around our paradigm of how we think about sidewalks. So that's a great equity conversation about, you know, it's also, you know, low cost walking compared to having to own a car. One of the one of the reverse equity arguments that happens in LA is just the fact that there's so many jobs that are accessible via a car versus via transit or biking within a half hour of where people live and combined with the, you know, the, the housing crisis, which means much, much more lower income people who are who are being forced out of the city give me give me your wisdom to just win that conversation <laughs> so yeah no i so so i gotta be honest like i actually have bad news on this one in in some ways um there's i think really important research that was done by an arizona state professor named david king where he looked at the ability of people without a car to who have low incomes to improve their careers and, and make a higher income. And he looked at two cities, New York City and Phoenix. New York City, dense, strong transit network, obviously. Um, and Phoenix, more of the traditional Southwestern built environment, right? Mm -hmm. And what he found was that you actually don't really pay, have a penalty in New York if you don't have a car and you're low income. Your, your likelihood of of improving your income is pretty much as good as anybody else who does have an automobile. 
In Phoenix, though, you're you're really, really, really going to struggle. You pretty much need to have a car to have a decent shot at getting a higher income. And that's because of the built environment. Just you can't reach uh, enough jobs in, in, in a manageable amount of time to be able to to, to improve your sort of station in uh, your station professionally. By the way, this gets back to our earlier exchange about economic development and transportation and the connections there. So applying that to Los Angeles, the reality is there's gonna be a lot of people that frankly are gonna, I would imagine, although I looked at the data, I imagine there's a lot of people that are frankly going to need a car to be able to access enough jobs to be able to improve their, their career station um, in at least in a large chunk of the city. Now that sucks and it's unfortunate and it should be something that we don't say, well, that means we just have to give everybody a car. It means we've got to figure out how we can have a transit network that is sufficient enough to provide the best shot possible at employment for the, or better employment for those who don't have a car. And we also need to build more densely because that in and of itself will make it easier for people to reach more jobs when those jobs are tend to be more concentrated rather than spread out over such a, a broad, broad uh, uh, part of the city. That's, That's what I would say. It's, it's such an indictment of our, of, our, of our choices that we require someone who's low income to spend $5,000 a year in order to make an income. It's horrible. No, it's absolutely terrible. And that is how the vast majority of American cities are right now. Do you think, though, that with um, Lyft, you know, and then the when you get on Lyft with three other people, and then, I don't know, do you know the app Turo? Yeah. Do you think with crowdsourcing car sharing, there's a chance that we could get a tech could actually save us on this? Did you see the article I wrote yesterday in City Lab? No. <laughs> Run, don't walk. <laughs> I literally wrote an article yesterday about this in City Lab. I don't know when this is going to come out, but I wrote it uh, uh, in, in mid to late March. Um, but uh, no, um, it was a piece exploring the potential of shared ride hail, pooled ride hail now, or when, right after COVID. It hasn't yet come back in America, but it's expected that it will. Uber has said that it is coming back. Um, and then shared autonomous vehicles in the future with like cruise or Argo or whatever. And the whole the reason why I wrote the article here, you know, spoiler alert, is uh, there is a whole host of evidence, lots of analyses showing that we as human beings don't want to share a trip <laughs> with a stranger. We don't like it. We don't like it. It's not good. Like, and, and frankly, if you've ever taken Uber Pool or Lyft Line. Matt, think of your experience. Didn't you kind of feel like you you won the jackpot if nobody got matched with you and you could go by yourself? <laughs> That's not a great business model when the way that you have a great experience with it is when you're not actually getting the product you're paying for. It's <laughs> not ideal. People don't like it. It's a luxury product if you can afford ride hail. And, and luxury products, we don't want the uncertainty of whether I'm going out of my route or not, whether that person who's coming into my car is going to make me feel unsafe or whether they're going to be on their phone the whole time and annoy me. I don't want to deal with it. I'm paying more than, than I would be for bike share or, or for transit. I, I, I want to, I want a good experience. This is, it's, this is a lot of evidence about this all showing that we generally don't like shared trips. Now we might accept them if there's a big enough price differential, which by the way, is part of why we take public transit sometimes. Um, but 
in the absence of governments impl- uh, uh, pushing on um, like, like, like using basically either dedicated lanes for shared trips or steep taxes on private ride hail trips and private AV trips, it's hard for me to see that it's realistic that we're actually going to have like a shared pooled mobility future. I kind of think it's a dead end. And what was the reflection on VMT again? Wasn't there a finding that it actually increased the amount of driving? Yeah, that's by a guy named Bruce Schaller, who has has done research into taxis and ride hail for a long time. He published a story, story. it's actually an academic article, forgive me, sorry, Bruce. Um, And it just came out uh, very recently, looking at a number of um, uh, of major cities in the U.S. concluding that on net, pooled ride hail actually led to an increase in vehicle miles traveled because otherwise people either wouldn't have traveled or they would have taken transit or biked or, um, or the, the, and also there's the, the induced deadheading of drivers driving around looking for their next trip. Do you, do you see, is, does free transit help the number of transit riders? Um. It might, but it's not what the riders most want. I know this is something that LA Metro is looking at, but there's a lot of evidence that's been collected by um, by a group called Transit Center, which is a national nonprofit looking at transit and consistently finding that riders, including low income riders, would prefer to have more frequent and reliable transit to having it be free. So I would much rather see resources go toward increasing frequencies than I would toward um, toward providing blanket free transit. Like if you want to apply targeted free transit to those who are in a particular subgroup of being low income or, or students or what have you, different conversation. But I, I'm skeptical of the overall free transit movement. I, I, I interviewed an economist about sort of free transit and congestion pricing, and he was he was sort of from an economist's point of view, is that you, you know, we have scarce road space and you just, you need dynamic pricing. That's how you, you'll get rid of traffic um, and actually you'll collect revenue. Where do you, is there, are there studies on that? Is that, I mean, congestion pricing, is that something that can, can really move the needle on this and get people out of their cars? Yeah, decongestion pricing is great, not only because it, it, uh, it forces people to recognize the externalities or the, the cost. Did you, did you catch that? Others. He 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 turned it into decongestion pricing. I, I love that. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, words matter sometimes. Words matter. Um, but also, like, and this is what really you need to do this to make it work is not just say, "Hey, we're imposing a tax on everybody who's driving." You've got to say, like, "Hey, we're we're going to use the money that's collected from these these taxes to improve the transportation network and provide more access." So it's not like we're just going to push you drivers onto like overcrowded trains or you just have to suck up the extra fee. We're going to provide additional transit service so that you have viable options to travel if you don't want to pay the extra fee of, of driving. That's really important that it not just be the decongestion taxes that are applied, but also the revenue being used to improve the transportation network. In terms of selling it in or, or actually objectively? Or both? I think both. I think that for selling it, yeah. Uh, but also it's how you end up with a better transportation network. 
Um, that's how you all, because you ultimately have to build in capacity somewhere if you're disincentivizing the use of, the, of, of a private automobile. And that could be transit, it could be bike lanes, it could be sidewalks, but you've got you've to be able to make that investment concurrently. That's been a big topic in New York as they've been working through their proposal there, which should come online fairly soon. <laughs> no thanks to Bill de Blasio. Correct. No, well, although that one was actually more Donald Trump. That one is where the- Oh, you're right, you're right. It was Trump and Elaine Chao who just sat on stuff unnecessarily, but it's it's already actually things are moving forward there. The New York City DOT uh, director, Polly Trottenberg under de Blasio, who she's actually quite good, I think. She's now the deputy to Buttigieg. So she's gonna, <laughs> well aware of New York's needs. Perfect. Let's just put it that way. Let's just put it that I way. I know we're almost out of time. Terrence, do you have any last questions? And I've one- you know, since, since, you, since, since you brought it back to federal, I know you've written an article on this recently. What are some of the federal regulations that you'd like to see to improve transportation policy? Coming out uh, of the Buttigieg. Well, a lot. We barely talked about the e-bike thing, uh, but uh, <laughs> that's a good one. No, but uh, to be honest, it's probably not the most important. What is fundamentally super important would be uh, a few different things. One is to just collect data about collisions and serious injuries and deaths uh, among for everyone, including cyclists and pedestrians to hold states accountable for making improvements on infrastructure for vulnerable street users where those collisions happen. It's amazing actually that we don't even have, have maps along these lines in states like Florida that every year are terrible with this stuff. Uh, I think that we should be dramatically rethinking how we pay for transit vis-a-vis -vis roads. Uh, there's, there was, I was just seeing a table showing that in the late 70s, we spent almost as much on transit as we did on highways, but transit's basically flatlined while highways have gone through the roof. That's crazy to me. That needs to, that, that, that requires Congress to be involved. We should be fundamentally rethinking that. And then also, um, I'll just get a little more tactical. I've written about this as well. Uh, we need to have a more muscular approach toward regulating new technologies like autonomous vehicle technology. When you have uh, companies like Tesla that are deliberately deceiving customers by calling a product full self-driving when it's literally not full self-driving. <laughs> Like literally, they themselves admit that it's when they terrifying. say submit documents to the state of California, it's like this is fundamentally dangerous. So, um, so those are a few initial ideas that I would throw out there. So amazing! Can I last question? And unless you really, you do you have to go? I, I make it quick. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> What city is going to be the first to get that this could like transform them, become, make them a center of tourism, I think? I mean, is there, is there a city that you think is going to go first? Um, I think there is, I don't know about going first makes it a little more of a, of a more binary than I think it is. I think there are cities that are making great strides. Like Seattle has had probably the most impressive jump in transit use of any city during the last decade. And I think that's fantastic when you look at what Seattle has done to really take what, what historically has been a car dominated Western city and become a little bit more like Portland, quote unquote. <laughs> um, I think Portland itself is, is really a model. Um, I actually am pretty happy with, with Washington DC's push to make it, I think I can get around pretty much everywhere on my bike. I mean, I still get angry about certain areas where we should have dedicated lanes, but if, if people in LA like come out to DC, try biking, 
you might be pleasantly surprised that about that it really is like a viable way for transport a, a, a mode of transportation, not just a recreation. So I, those are just a few of the cities that I see going in a, a constructive direction. But this is the kind of competition I hope we're, every city wants to be a part of. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I should pause it there. I'll just say if folks, I mentioned some articles I wrote and stuff like that. They, they're all available. I actually have a website. If people want to see the articles I wrote, it's all on davidzipper.com. And if people, if I got anything wrong, you can always just find me on Twitter. It's just at David Zipper. Um, and lots of people yell at me there. So feel free to join them. Well, thank, thank you, so you David. No, this was a lot of fun. Um, no, I appreciate it. It was a pleasure being with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 